Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger, and this morning I'm joined by Wilkie Law. What's going on, everybody? And we have Heather Salas of AIE. Heather, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are really looking forward to having a conversation with you this morning to talk about the conference, which hopefully... We're going to get a chance to be a, a part of this fall and also what you were doing prior to joining AIE um, uh, with your mentoring, which is, is kind of the direction we really try to go. So we're, we're excited to have you on here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, to get started, we try to ask a couple you know fun questions just to get you going. So could you tell us to get started uh, about your favorite teacher from your schooling experience and why that person was your favorite teacher? This question always stumps me because as a teacher, I've had so many different teachers, you know? Um, But when I have to go back to it, when I think about like, you know, my grade school experience, it's probably my kindergarten teacher and her name was Miss Spear. And um, she was pretty powerful influence in my life because my parents had just recently gotten divorced and it was kind of a tumultuous period, but, um, she was really loving and, um, accepting and very, uh, relaxed when we came into school and she just really built relationships with, with everybody. And I just really remember her and her impact on me. So that's who it would be kindergarten teacher. Nice. That's good. That's, that's a common theme that we have. Um, you know, with people we have on the podcast is it's usually always about the relationship that that person built with them as a student that usually has the greatest impact on on the students as we grow up. I think Wilkie and I can both say the same, that it was the relationship with the teacher that really made the impact for us. Definitely. All right. So second, second question, if if you, as a teacher, if you were a, a particular superhero or had a superpower, what what would that be? Hmm. Let me think about that one. I mean, gosh, if, if you could read minds, I don't know if there's a superhero that does that, but that would be, like, ideal to really, like, get at every kid's, like, you know where they're at, where you could scaffold them from and know like what their interest is and honestly how they perceive things. But I mean, I don't, is there a superhero that reads minds? There is. And actually that's the one that I collected when we first came up with this question. It's Charles <laughs> Xavier from the X-Men. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that's like, you, you and I are right eye to eye with that because I think that's so important. As teachers, that's what we're trying to do the entire day. We're trying yep. to get inside their thinking space to see what do you know, what, where, where are you confused, where can I help you? Because a lot of times kids won't verbalize it, or they don't know how to articulate it. Well, you know, to be honest, there's right. There's a lot of teachers that actually have that superpower. So <laughs> <laughs> that's one that we develop over time. We start yeah, for sure. That's how you get your teaching chops. Yeah, definitely. Nice. Awesome. Nice. All right. So another just kind of. Off, off the top question, what is the best advice you ever gotten, not as a teacher, but the, the best advice you've ever gotten in life? And who was the person that gave you that advice? Oh, you know, there's been a lot of different things, but my mom gives pretty good advice, I have to say. Though I wouldn't have wanted to admit that like 10 years ago. Um, but probably some of the best advice she's ever given me is just like, sometimes when you feel like things cannot get any harder it's when that breaking point happens so you know when you feel like you can't go on another day usually things shift and you might not know it's going to happen and you might not think it's going to happen but if you look back on things and think about when when stuff was really hard usually there was a breaking point of some sort right around that time so whenever I feel like I can't take it anymore I just kind of have to have faith that it's about to shift Absolutely. Start looking for the ship. Yeah. That's a great piece of advice. I mean, I think a lot of people, they think automatically when I, when, it's, when it gets hard, I don't want to go any further. Versus when it gets hard, let me start being receptive to what's going on around me so I can see when this happens. 
and actually move into that direction. So that's awesome advice. Yeah. Awesome. So then kind of getting into the education part of it, when you were in the classroom or mentoring or even now, did you have a particular, what you would call an educational philosophy? Um, let's see. I think my philosophy in education really probably hasn't changed since I started. I'm in, on my like 16th year in education, and it's been pretty much kids first always, um, always trying to make sure that you get you hit kids at their level and build them up from there. I, you know, I see a lot of different programs and philosophies out there that kind of seem to not really target kids where they're at and just kind of focuses on where they should be. So, I mean, I don't know if that's a philosophy, but just meeting kids needs where they're at would probably, if that is a philosophy, that's what it would be. Oh, I would say 100%, uh, that's a philosophy or, you know, I mean, and we, we use the term philosophy kind of loosely because, you know, sometimes the word philosophy can scare people off as it has to be something grand or, you know, like that, but it's really just, you know, what we could ask to, you know, what are you really, what's the main thing you strive to do or what's, you know, as a teacher, what's the one thing you really try to do with your kids? That's the most important. And I think that's, that's a great one to really just, um, look out and just say, I'm going to try to meet kids where they're at. I think that's really important. And, and you were saying, you know, in, in your spot now, you feel like there's a lot of stuff out there that's our trainings or programs that are not trying to meet kids where they're at or not trying to teach, teach teachers to do that. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely a push to look at the end game as opposed to where we're starting from. In education, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily a new thing, but it's definitely been there for a while. And, you know, I was trying to think of, like, what philosophy would I label that as, like, what I'm, what I'm talking about. I guess it's, like, constructivist, essentially. Um, just building off one's own capacity, right, where you're at, and kind of that growth mindset of, like, everyone comes with a skill set, and what can we use that you know to build on? Um but yeah, I do think that there's a lack of uh, understanding sometimes of the whole kid and what they're bringing to the table in education, and there's a lot of band-aid approaches to uh, getting kids where we want them to be, as, a, as opposed to really looking at what they have when they come to us. Right. And I think, but I think that's so essential, um, especially when you know, in this, we're, we live in a high-stake testing era where everything exactly. has to be quantified and you have to do it without looking at things. If this kid comes to me, and I, it's one thing I'm really excited about the district I'm in, and we've, they, they're really trying to take this shift off of pass-fail in the mm-hmm. teacher's mindset and shift it to did they get better. Right. That true growth model. Um, and I think that... <clears throat> You know, as, as we evolve in, edu- in education, we have to, like you say, take our mind off of the end game and focus on that process. Where is that kid now and what can we, what, what's necessary for us to do to get that kid to not necessarily be, everyone's not going to be the 4.0 student. Everyone's not going to be. But can I make this student better than what they were before they got to me? And I think that's where... I think that's absolutely where education should be striving to get to. Yeah, I agree. And I do think it's getting more that way, even at the state level. I see even with the new accountability systems that are coming out, it is where right. focus more on growth and progress instead of just the final the final outcome. So that's exciting, you know. There's a little yeah. bit of movement there. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it really shows that shit. Like you, just, you said, your mom's advice, you know. When you feel things are at its worst, and for a while we kind of felt like the dirt was being piled on education, and now we're starting to see a shift. And I think it's just going to keep taking voices getting out there uh, to express the process of the shift, to keep people in mind that, no, we don't want to go backwards. Let's keep evolving, let's keep moving, let's keep getting better, and let's keep refining this model of growth so that it becomes that quantifiable tool that determines a successful school versus just a pass-fail situation. Definitely. So kind of along that along that vein, Heather, what would you, desc- 
say is the the state of education, you know, say in the state of Texas or or nationally? This is kind of a question. This is a question we like to ask everybody just to kind of get their view on over overarchingly, say in the state of Texas or nationally. What do you think the state of education is right now? Um, let's see. Well, I do think there's. I mean, you can see nationally how things are going in different states too, as far as teachers. And teachers having more voice, I think that that's, that's one thing that's coming up, which I love to see because, I mean, the teachers are the ones doing the work, you know. Um, so I, I think there's going to be a bigger push towards focusing on teachers and teachers as leaders. Um, and I think that that growth thing is coming out as well. While there's, still, there's always going to be accountability systems and there is reason for those. I understand that. But I think if we can have smart accountability systems that take into account all the different areas of education and all the different areas that, you know, humans have and that students bring to the table, I think that's a good shift that's occurring. Um, you know, there's still some drawbacks to a lot of, a lot of things, but for the most part, I feel, I feel pretty hopeful, more hopeful than I have felt in the past. And I don't know if that's because I've just learned more or if it's because things are really, really changing. But either way, I do, I do feel a change. I feel like it's happening. I think it's slow, but I think it's there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's, that's a, a good thing. We hope that things are changing. And, and like you said, to see, you know, the teachers in West Virginia or now Kentucky or Oklahoma or Arizona or Colorado that are you know, really standing up for themselves. And, you know, it's hard when you look at like Oklahoma, it didn't seem like a lot really changed. But the the fact that teachers are willing to stand up and, and not that they're willing to, but they feel safe that they can and they're supported in that, I think is, I think that's a huge shift. Yes, I agree. And uh, it's pretty powerful to see you know, the communities that stood behind the teachers that were walking out was pretty impressive, too. And I agree about Oklahoma. I wish there had been different outcomes. But I think it's it, it'll be slow shifts there. Absolutely. So, Heather, could you, you know, because we were talking last night and, and you've had quite a, you know, a, a career path and now you just changed to to your new position. But could you talk a little bit about what your um career has been both as a teacher and an instructional coach and a mentor and, and just kind of what you've learned along all of those different jobs? Sure. Um, well, I started out in, well, let's see, 16 years ago um, in a kind of semi-rural district right outside of Austin, Del Valley ISD. And I was hired on there as a Title I resource specialist, um, which essentially I was working as an ESL teacher. So I was pulling small groups of bilingual students out to kind of advance their skills in English. And I also worked with newcomers that were coming in in fourth and fifth grade and really didn't have a transition time in their native language. So um, that was my, my background in the classroom. I also worked a lot with teachers during that time, doing a lot of inclusion and kind of mentoring at the time as well. Um, so that was about nine years, and then I came back to AISD right after that as a mentor teacher, working with uh, novice teachers, so teachers in their first through third years. So it was with a grant. It was a grant-based position, um, a big grant that AISD had going on at the time. And we supported teachers in their first through third years, and we were full-release mentors. There was about 40 of us covering different teachers. So our role was solely to support new teachers. We didn't have our own classrooms. We just worked with new teachers. And that was an, an amazing um, model of support for these guys. And we were trained to really follow a tight mentoring cycle and work a lot with those teachers. So that lasted about four years. Then I came on another grant for three years doing the same type of work, but just at two different schools. So I had less teachers, so I was more focused with them and really saw a shift in the campuses that I worked at. And the teachers that I worked with stayed in the profession mostly. I had a couple quit, but um, most of them got through. And these were, you know, these are underserved communities, underserved schools, Title I 
Um, I've never worked in any campus that wasn't Title I, so I don't really know what that feels like. Um, so, yeah, that, that was it. And then about three months ago, so the grant was ending, and I was also looking into new things. I pursued my admin certification on the side and wasn't sure what direction I was going to be headed, headed in, and this opportunity came up to work at Region 13, and it kind of took a lot of the different skills I have and put it into one position. It's kind of an ideal role for me right now. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm supporting some uh, statewide grants. And I'm also helping with the AIE conference. So that's it, that's it in a nutshell. Perfect. So could you, you know, you, you talked about having, you know, being, you know, just a mentor teacher where you didn't have your own classroom and, and that, so what, what do you see really, you know, from that experience as, um, the, the value of, of, you know, being a mentor teacher and also the value of, you know, mentoring teachers, like what, what do you see as the, the best things that those newer teachers gain from really having a good mentor in the profession? Um, Okay. I don't, you know, this one's like, where do I begin? I think like if a new teacher could have high quality mentoring, it's job embedded, there would be such less teacher attrition rates. And we would have some really good high quality new teachers. Uh, the benefits were that I could really embed myself with the teachers. That, and the ones that were starting, I really kind of could, could be there to sometimes hold their hand, sometimes just let them cry on my shoulder, whatever it was. But, um, yeah, just being there really with them as they were kind of starting off because it's, you know, you, you have no idea what's coming when you set foot in a classroom. And some of these teachers are all certified, haven't been in a classroom since they were in school. Some of them student taught, but still, you know, even if you student taught, you don't you don't know what you're doing when you have your own kids. Um, but, I mean, we went through the process of planning to begin with, to really getting to know the students. I had a lot of different protocols I would use with them. And then as soon as I could, I would get into a pretty quick, tight observation cycle with them. So I would give them, you know, observe them regularly, weekly, give them feedback immediately and see what they could do to, you know, implement any of the feedback I gave them. And uh, if they were pretty reflective and could take it and roll with it, they really could improve their practice pretty quickly. So I do think just that embedded, that job embedded PD for a new teacher is crucial. And I mean, unfortunately, it's it's not possible for every scenario, but I do think there's ways to increase the quality of mentoring that happens, even if you don't have the full release model. If you have other classroom teachers, as long as they have some skills to mentor with, which a lot of people don't, they're just told, you're going to mentor this teacher, go. And uh, I think if we could provide even classroom-based teachers, more coaching skills to work with new teachers would be really beneficial. Awesome. And that, that, that you know, I'm the mentor coordinator at our campus in, um, here in Houston. And, you know, on average, we have anywhere between three to ten teachers, you know, new teachers. And we, we put some things in place to really focus and dial in on training the mentor coordinators. But I think like when you said that job embedded PD, I think that like that's something that resonated with me because it was like, you know, that's like a missing link in what, because it's, who has the time to do it? You know, because I'm also the math instructional coach as well as a mentor. So it's not, it's not like this is my sole job. So I'm having to balance and juggle it within all the other duties, you know, as assigned. Yeah, and it's, I think that having that dedicated person, that that's your sole focus, is to, you know, make sure that the dots are being connected between the mentor, the mentee, and that there's a centralized curriculum that's being taught, especially by district, to say, okay, this is what every new teacher, regardless of what their content area should be, should be learning, not just about pedagogy, but about, you know, just skills and things that you're going to need as a teacher in becoming an educator in a, in, a, in, in a new adult life, so to speak. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think um, every, I mean, AISD has a pretty good mentoring model. 
even though they're getting, you know, they lost the grant for the full release mentors. Um, I was able to, to work on that part of how to train the, the campus-based mentors. And I think it's also, though, based on the campus to really kind of create that coaching culture so that it's not just happening with, with the new teachers, but with all the teachers. And there's a collaboration and a growth mindset and people give each other feedback and observe each other. Maybe there's learning logs and peer-to-peer observation, all that kind of thing. It's just going to really increase all teachers' growth, too. But um, I do I do believe new teachers need a little bit different support, but when it comes down to it, I think it could it could impact a whole campus if it was, you know, implemented more, more, uh, effectively. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I wonder though, too, you know, in your mentoring experience, how, how often for new teachers does their, you know, outside of work life, their personal life, like, like you mentioned, having their most likely their first adult job, how often does stuff outside of the classroom impact new teachers within the classroom? Do you mean their own personal stuff or their student stuff? Um, let's just start with their own their own personal stuff, and then we can get into you know understanding how you know what impacts right. students. Well, I mean, new teachers definitely have to gain that skill set of uh, being able to moderate their, I don't know what the word is I'm really looking for, but I think that's hard for teachers to balance when they first start out. And I mean, the burnout is intense and it comes quickly. I usually say by October, you know, if you're, if you haven't gotten sick by October, that's when it starts. If you're a new teacher and then it's like, if you don't take care of yourself, it can be the rest of the year. (laughs) And you can just see them start to go downhill around October. So um, I really push self-care for teachers, you know, tell them to take a personal day, a mental health day, just do what they have to do to to make sure that they're taking care of their health because that's what I see goes first with teachers because it's stressful and it takes a toll on your nervous system to be in a school every day. Um, And if you're not used to it and don't know quite how to handle that stress, it can really take you out. So, um, as far as their personal life goes, I, you know, I think it can go either way. They either, uh, shut off their personal life and become, you know, or they're at the campus like 10, 12 hours a day trying to get through and then they burn out real fast or they don't take the job as serious. That doesn't happen as often. I think most teachers come in knowing what they're getting into. There's a handful that might not, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a hard balance. It's a tricky balance. I think it's important for teachers to consider that, you know, not personal life matters. You know, when you're teaching is a human profession, it's, it's human interaction daily. And whatever you bring in the classroom, your kids are going to see. And, you know, it's hard to separate that sometimes. So I think it's okay to be real. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I was... My first year out of college, I substitute taught in Wisconsin because that was at the time, you know, 2008, 2009, that was the model. You sub for a year and then you got your foot in the door, but there just weren't any doors to get my foot into. So that's how I, you know, wound up in Houston teaching in Aldine. And I was 24 or 25 at the time. And, and I, I regrettably kind of still live the college lifestyle like... I worked during the week and then I was looking forward to going out on the weekends. And by the time the end of the weekend came, I was probably more tired than I was when Friday came, you know, and, and, and I regrettably now, you know, wish I would have had a mentor or, and my parents did tell me, but I wish I would have been a lot better about the way I spent my money, you know, cause I can look back to when you get that first, you get that first real adult paycheck and you think you're rich and you can go out and, you know, buy a whole new wardrobe and you can do all that stuff. I mean, those are, those are the type of lessons looking back that I should, I can't say that I didn't get, but I really wish I would have listened to those lessons, especially because I think it would have, it would have made a difference in how quickly I burned out as a teacher. Um, I mean, you learn pretty quick, right? You, you go to a couple happy hours and you come to school the next day and 
kids know, man. They're like sharks. They can sense your weakness. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to admit how many times, you know, maybe on a Friday I, you know, we did a movie Friday or something like that to where, you know, you just had to keep the kids occupied because you were so burnt out. So, yeah, there are definitely, definitely things that um, I would... I, I would definitely if if I you know when I'm in a mentoring role I would I would like to advise them because I I love what you said about you know self care and and Wilkie and I are both you know me in my 30s and him you're in your you're in your upper 30s Wilkie right you're still we're still in the no, same I'm in my, we're still I'm in this in my lower 40s I'm, oh I'm, you're I'm not <laughs> but um, you know we're we're both still trying to do the self-care thing and I think that's a pro you know that's a process too that's important for teachers because I I remember myself I kind of modeled what I ate when I first got to Houston and I saw the other teachers and so many of the teachers I worked with went out and got fast food every day so that's just kind of what I did because that's what I saw and you know you learn and and kind of grow and and he and I are both still on that phase where you're trying to trying to live a better life every day. I think it makes an impact on teachers for sure, even even experienced teachers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say you know I don't, I'm not quite sure a lot of mentors would tell me exactly what was happening on the outside. <laughs> right. So you know, there's probably a lot of meetings that we had that maybe they were not in their best state, but I wasn't quite sure of what was going on but yeah you know and I had a lot of teachers also that weren't coming in in their early 20s um I had a lot of people that came in even after having children they decided they wanted to go back and be try to teach so they would get their alternative certification so you know second career folks um yeah but definitely I think the majority of the ones that would come in straight out of uh university they, they would put the most in and probably balance the least, you know. Um, they kind of would go at it hard and then tend to burn out. So, And I think that that's an unfortunate uh, symptom of education. We get a lot of young teachers, and I think the expectation is that they can put in those hours. And they can, you know, put in their all. But then, you know, by the time they're 27, they're like, I don't know if I can continue this. So, you know, and that's when they're starting to get good. <laughs> Right. So, yeah. Absolutely. So did the majority of the teachers you saw in in AISD, were they from that background to where they where they came from Title I schools, or was there an adjustment for those teachers of, you know, trying to understand what kids who go to a Title one school, what, what kind of background and what kind of life they live outside. Cause I know we had kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier. Cause that was me. I grew up in small town, Wisconsin. And then I started teaching in a title an urban title one school in Houston. And it was, it was probably a two or three year adjustment for me to really understand what those kids were going through. Oh yeah. And this is, you know, one of the biggest things I think that we need to provide for new teachers is kind of that more like cultural proficiency training. Um, no, I mean, the majority of the teachers I got were, you know, white women straight out of the university um, coming into Title I schools and kind of expecting it to be like their school experience. And, you know, it was a huge adjustment. And some teachers were more easily able to adapt and understand and be a little more responsive to their kids. But most of them, I think really did struggle. And I, you know, for a long time, I struggled on how to coach them through that. And uh, luckily, AISD really kind of pushed cultural proficiency and provided the coaches and mentors a lot of training on it. And I was able to, at least the last two years I was mentoring, really kind of target that area and talk talk to my mentees about it and try to get them to think about what is their cultural lens? What are they bringing to the classroom? Are there expectations based off their own culture? What is what does respect mean to them that might be different to their kids? You know, respect is really a culturally based idea. So, and, you know, one of the biggest things I would hear is the kids just don't respect me. 
And so we kind of break that down and say, well, what does respect look like to you? Okay. Do you think that's the same as what it looks like to them or to their families or to their community? And does that mean that it's better or worse? Like just kind of unpacking all of that. And it was a slow process. And it's one that I think, you know, it's kind of a lifelong process really is thinking about your own culture and how it impacts how you interact with others. But um, it was, it was definitely something that I was passionate about and I did see a lot of results from when I would talk to the teachers and talk them through it. You know, a couple of teachers, I was able to coach for three years in a row and start that process. And by the third year, they really would have a better perspective on what they were bringing into the classroom, what their kids were bringing into the classroom, where those might like butt heads and kind of be able to see how to build off, off each other's culture. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's that's one of the places where I, I, I feel like I've grown, and and I, I taught four years in Houston before I started uh, teaching with Wilkie at a fifth and sixth grade campus, and I probably learned, I probably learned more in the three years that I was with him than I did in the in the prior four years because he really taught me the value of of opening myself up to them. And, and really being open and having conversations and, and trying to gain, like you said, that understanding of what I bring to the classroom versus what they bring. And, you know, there were places where that butts heads, but, but Wilkie was really, really taught me that just about every kid, you, you can, if you're willing to try, you can find that place where you have something that intersects, like that you have something in common, or there's, there's something that you both like. There's, there's always a way that you can connect with a kid, even if you don't necessarily um, agree with them on everything. You can always kind of find that space where you can start and build a relationship with those kids. Definitely. I mean, it, it first takes getting to know them, right? And that's, I think, one step that teachers forget. <laughs> they don't actually get to know their kids. So some of the kids that seem like they might be the most challenging a lot of times teachers know the least about those kids. And if you kind of, you know, start to dig and understand, it can really open doors and, yeah, create those uh, intersections, like you said, where you can really connect. And let me ask you this question. Did you, as a mentor, you as a mentor, did you ever give new teachers the advice not to smile until December? <laughs> I did not give that advice. I'm more of a, a kill them with kindness kind of person. <laughs> Uh, and to be quite honest, I think kids need to know that you like kids off the bat. You know, I think they're going to do more for you if they know that you're there because you like them and you like children and you like teaching. So um, I'm, I was always like kind but firm, you know, mm. set those boundaries. Don't waver from them. Be consistent. I think consistency is the biggest thing. If any new teacher needs advice, like just be consistent. Whatever you do, do the same thing, because a lot of new teachers try a gazillion different things and kids don't know what to expect and then they they don't trust you so very much a firm believer you start the year with a smile and a warm environment that's safe for kids that's going to build relationships they're going to feel like a part of a community and that's your family that classroom that year is your family right and i I love it you know i've always when i first started teaching that's what i heard the whole time don't smile at them until december Go in, and I guess what I was asked the question: Would I want to even continue in a conversation with someone who never smiled at me? <laughs> you know, would I want to go into someone's room and engage in a meaningful conversation with someone who never smiled at me? And if they waited until December to start smiling at me, you've already lost me. Right. And you know, and it's just one of those unfortunate situations about that advice that we've been given. Right. I mean, I think it's pretty old school and it takes like a different, you know, idea of education. I think education is like we know, and I'm not sure who said the quote, but it's, you know, we don't, people don't remember what you've taught them. They'll remember how you made them feel. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like the teacher I told you about, I don't remember what she taught me. I know I learned letters and how to read in kindergarten, but <laughs> what I remember is how she made me feel. And even if I look back on the experiences I had in high school, 
the teachers or experiences I remember, it was not about the content. It's about the feeling, the emotion behind it. So, you know, you, you learn when you're connected. So how do you connect kids? I don't think you do it by not smiling, but I also come, I also come from elementary background. So, you know, I might have a different perspective if I was at a high school or something. Well, I think it's, you know, I tell people all the time, I think we get the misconception that, oh, they're in high school, you can't do the same thing. But I think some of the basic principles are just human principles. Yeah. You know, we want to, like you said, we want to connect with each other. We want to build that sense of interdependence. And the only way we can do that is if we show people we care about them. Yeah. You know, I started yeah, out at the ninth grade. I started out at the ninth grade campus. And they were telling me, you're being too nice. You're being too nice. They're going to take advantage of you. Right. Okay, but if you, if, you, if you walk in and see me at my interaction with the kids, you'll see I'm nice, but I'm firm on what I expect. Yeah. And when the kids know that, they know, number one, okay, He's fair, he's going to talk to us, he's going to give us opportunities, but when we do blow it, he's going to call us out on it. Right. And I don't think you yeah. have to be mean or ugly to kids to, to get them to understand that I'm disappointed in, in your actions right now. Not right. you, but your actions. The decisions you made disappoint me. And I think mm-hmm. we, we teach kids how to... I, I, I told my, I tell my math teachers all the time, the most important piece of content we can give our kids is how to build healthy relationships. Period. Yeah. Yeah. That is the one thing that transcends all, all curriculum. It transcends all um, areas of expertise. Everyone needs to know how to be in a healthy relationship. And if we can teach that only, solely, the kids will teach themselves a lot of the other stuff. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah. I- and I can attest to the fact that it's it's the same in high school because right now I'm I'm teaching at a high school, and you know I have. I teach alternative or uh, in an alternative setting, so I have uh, 25 at-risk kids that I that are I'm primarily responsible for teaching. But then I also have a couple of just study halls, and some of the best relationships I have with kids are kids in that study hall, just because you know the the they've said to me they're like we like you because you listen to us when we talk to you, and and those simple things of just you know connecting with them over that or connecting with them over the fact that we both like to eat chipotle burritos or you know it it doesn't take much to really connect with with those kids and you know I kind of thought it would be different going from middle school to high school but I mean it really isn't it, it's just the same and and those kids get to know me and you know they ask me questions and the majority of the time I will answer them you know completely honestly I mean there are certain questions where I leave things out but you know, it's it's that getting getting to know them piece and and to Wilkie's point about not smiling, I had a professor in college who said he didn't wear a wedding ring in his classroom in a high school because he didn't want the kids to know he was married. And I mm-hmm. I, I I found that so strange because, you know, I was very connected to a lot of the teachers I had, so you know, to that point, I think, you know, being warm and being inviting and being open to the kids, I think, is is probably the most important thing that you can do with them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that kind of just perpetuates this myth of, like, teachers as, like, <laughs> creatures that don't have lives outside of the classroom, right? I, I just, yeah, I don't understand that necessarily. And I don't think it's good for our profession. I, I think that if we don't humanize who we are, then we're not going to be able to like elevate who we are as professionals. You know, like we, we do have lives. We have really rich lives outside of our work and um, that, that helps us in many ways, but it also, you know, if I'm not saying your kids need to know all your dirty details, but I do think for them to connect, you, you've got to let them know who you are a little bit for sure. Absolutely. What's, Wookie, what's the joke you always say about teachers coming out of a cave or coming out of a closet? No. Yeah, we're not teacher bots. You know, we don't yeah, come out yeah. of the closet at 7.45 and report back to the closet at 3.45 and repeat that all the time. You know, we're, we're actually really real people. Right. You know, and, you know, when I took my, I was teaching a math class, the GT group, and these are kids who are super, duper smart. You know, they were always, I didn't have to teach, really. 
but they had a, they struggled with failing and making mistakes. So one year I was learning to play the guitar. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take my guitar in and let them see the learning process in something that's fun. So every Friday, while they were testing, I would sit at the front of the room and play them whatever song that I had learned or whatever chord progression I had learned from that week. And those kids, I felt I connected with them so much more because they saw me fumbling. They saw me as this teacher who was so confident and knew everything, but the moment I put this guitar in my hand, I was just like them. Yeah. And then when I found out there were kids in the classroom who actually played guitar, now they really became my teachers and started saying, well, he was a lot, if you know, if you hold your hand a little higher up, you can actually get to the, to the fingering positions on the fret. Oh, okay, how do we do that again? So they're watching me constructively struggle but not give up. And I think that when teachers put, put on this air of I'm the, per, I'm the perfect, perfect, you know, content specialist in this classroom and I'm here to teach you, you're here to learn from me, and that's the parameters. I think we, we cheapen what education really is in that exchange of knowledge, that drawing out of them what they have and them drawing out of us what we have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I've heard, like, I think it's Brittany Brown that talks about vulnerability and how you can't really build trust unless you show people your vulnerability. So, I mean, that's mm -hmm. what you did for your students by showing them your struggle learning the guitar. You were vulnerable in front of them. They saw that, and then they were able to trust you and show their own vulnerability and then create that, you know, learning relationship. So, yeah, I, you know. I think, I think we're getting there. People are having these conversations about how it happens a lot more, which is great. But the whole idea, you know, there's a, and there's an article I've read before called the myth of the super teacher, right? And it's this idea and it's, it's perpetuated in movies and TV shows and the way people talk about teachers that, you know, teachers are either, you're either born a teacher or not. And that's just not true. And if that was the case, you know, that's why we have teachers not staying in the profession because they don't feel like they can be successful right off the bat. Um, right. So teachers are built. They are, you know, groomed and coached and trained. And if you, and I think a lot of us are lucky. We have a lot of supports when we start out and we stay in it. I was, I was blessed my, my first year with an amazing mentor and she just kind of modeled everything I wanted to be as an educator. So I, you know, because of that, I felt like I had such a good experience right out the bat that I didn't want to leave. So, yeah. Awesome. And my, my mentor and I, when I my first year teaching, I started out in uh, teaching special education inclusion. And my mentor teacher just happened to be one of my inclusion teachers. And I was housed in her room. So it was almost like, there was never a time where she was not mentoring. Right. So it was like every single class period, she was mentoring me on, even as I'm observing, she's asking me questions like, what are you observing as you're watching the kids right now? Yeah. You know, okay, so now you, I know what you observe. How would you, how do you respond to that? That's great. You yeah. know, and, 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 and even to this day, I mean, she's now working under me and I'm the instructional specialist and she's, you know, one of the classroom teachers working under me. And guess what? It still goes on because she still tells me, hey, I think you could get a lot more if you spent more time in this person's room because I'm listening to what they're saying. So right. even though the, the positions have changed and really, you know, kind of the roles have reversed, she's still being that mentor for me now 10 years later. Yeah, that's great. You know, and I think that, that that's something about a great mentor is that they never stop offering you the, that service of being there for you and being that that, that voice and that objective, you know, consciousness around what you're doing. Right. Awesome. Well, we definitely want to be respectful of your your time, Heather. And didn't didn't you say last night that you might have a, a sick kid or two around your house? Uh, just one right now. Hopefully mm -hmm. it'll stay that way. <laughs> yeah, my son has strep throat. So. Oh, no. It's, it's been a hard season for uh, the elementary schools. I'm sure the high schools and middle schools as well. But between the flu and everything else, I thought we were done. But yeah. All right. Hopefully this is the last bout. Yeah. So could you could you could you talk a little bit about uh, the AIE conference that's coming up in November and you know what teachers can expect if if they attend? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm very excited to be a part of the AIE team. It's uh, going to be November 13th and 14th in San Antonio. 
And our theme this year is Be the Change. And um, we're really focusing on trying to get all the practices and theories and ideas that have been swirling around people are talking about and trying to really put those things in action to make some change happen um, in education. So AIU stands for Advancing Improvement in Education, and that's exactly what we're trying to do is just push teachers and teacher leaders and campus leaders, district leaders, even state partners to really um, come together, find some ways to collaborate, work, listen to some amazing keynotes, get some ideas from um, breakout sessions and strategies, conversations, collaboration to, to take back to their schools. So it's going to be a great conference. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, really hoping that people come back to their, their schools inspired and ready to be the change. Yeah, that's that sounds awesome. And, and you know, for you guys are still looking for proposals, right, for presenters? Yeah, definitely. Our closing date is May 31st currently. Um, yeah, that's what we're looking at. So... We have uh, six strands that we're looking to get proposals from. Um, it's community engagement, whole child systems and innovation, content curriculum, leadership, and I'm leaving one out. Uh, can't think of it right now. Um, those are the six strands, and uh, we're really right now, you know, kind of hoping to get some community engagement proposals. We, we haven't had a lot submitted in that area. And I mean, really could be tweaked. Any, any ideas you have could be tweaked to engage community probably, but yeah, we are definitely, we have uh, different formats that you can present in. We have, um, world cafes, which is a smaller group panels, extended breakouts, which are about an hour and a half and then general breakout sessions for 45 minutes. So, um, yeah, we're looking for more proposals. So if you're interested, go to our website and check it out. Um, so what, so what do you mean by community engagement? What, what type of, of proposals or, or what type of things would fall under the community engagement category? Right. Well, um, you know, through the conversations I've had, especially lately since I've started this job, uh, I'm, I'm working a lot with statewide schools and I've been talking to different campuses and one of the big things we hear a lot is that there's a lack of community involvement or family involvement at the schools. So um, that affects so many things in the in the school, including attendance and you know dropout rates, everything, academics. So we're looking to hope to find communities that are having success or schools that are having success in involving their communities and families and um, kind of share their ideas on what they're doing. We're also looking at, um, you know, community schools. I know that that's, that's a big push. I, I, I was lucky enough to work at a school that was great here in Austin that really kind of became a community school, and they had wraparound services for the entire community. So it wasn't just serving the students in that school, but it was serving the whole community around the school, which kind of just builds this, you know, capacity for everyone. And elevates everyone in the community. So, you know, I mean, I think that's our ultimate goal as educators generally is to impact the whole community, not just those kids in your classroom, but their families. And, you know, once they leave your classroom, how can they go out into a world that is better and more supported as well? So, um, you know, wraparound services, ways that you're involving your communities, PTAs, PTOs, anything like that is what we'd like to hear. Awesome. Nice. Awesome. W- Wilkie, you got any uh, other questions? Anything you'd like to, to hit on before we wrap this thing up? Uh, no, I think it's, I think this is a good way to end it. I mean, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I know we're planning to put it on our calendar. Um, I'm excited just to be around. Your passion, I, I feel it even through through this podcast, the, the passion that you have for education and for for educators, you know, not just for the system, but for the mechanisms and the organisms that make up the system. And I think that that is what we're trying to make more infectious and make more people aware of that, you know, I like to use the metaphor of an organism versus a mechanism, a machine, so to speak. 
You know, we mm-hmm. tried to make education this machine, this well-oiled machine that toots its horn when it starts and toots its horn when it leaves. But it's more of an organism that has to adapt to whatever is being whatever's being thrown at it from the outside forces. And we're little bitty organisms, part of this huge one, you know, making up these different systems that I think once we shift our mindset, I think we'll actually be on the right path. And I think that shift is happening. Like you said, that, 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 your mom's advice even is going to spill over to me because I'm going to use that. I love that. <laughs> that when you feel that way, you know, that start looking for that shift. And I think that we're at that vigilant state of education with all the turmoil that we should start looking for the shift and not just accentuating the, the, the negatives and the things that are going wrong, but really start dialing in on those things that are, that are working, that are working well, and how can we replicate that in other areas. And so yeah, I'm excited for you guys. I'm excited for for the conference uh, again. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being a part of of, of our voice to get our, to get this voice for educators out into the world. Yeah, no, it's it's great. Thank you. I mean, it's great to meet you guys, and I hear the passion from you as well. And uh, I'm really happy that I was able to be a part of your podcast. And I love the analogy about the organism because that's exactly right. Like we have to shift, right? We can't stay the same because Nothing else around us is staying the same. <laughs> so we can't keep doing exactly. We can't keep doing the same thing we've been doing and expect different results, right? Right. So, change the system. Yeah. All right, that's perfect. Thank you, Heather, so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, guys, and uh, best of luck to you. I hope you have a great rest of your school year. I know that there's still some. Uh, Stressful times ahead with star testing. Well, I don't. I don't know what you have up in Wisconsin, but uh, I I know what's happening here in Texas. I'm sure there's some standardized testing you have to do too. Yeah, we just we just finished ours, so thankfully we're we're on the other side of it. All right. Yeah. Well, you're getting close. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We're right around the corner. Yeah. All right. Well, I look forward to he- hearing from you guys and seeing your proposal. And um, we did just release our, our one of our main keynotes that we're going to be having at AIE conference too. So um, it's Pedro Nagara, and I'm really excited about hearing him speak. He'll be sharing his words on the the last day. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. That's gonna be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, again, thank you yeah. so much, Heather, and and hopefully your your son feels better. <laughs> I'm straight. Well, thank you. All right. Talk to you soon.